Good afternoon and welcome back to the Conservatarian Exchange on the Liberty Block, hosted today by Mike, Ed, Ed, and myself, Steve. Welcome, everybody. Hey, hey guys. So when we last met, we were like an hour or two before the debates. As someone just said, it feels like years ago, but I assume yeah. everyone wants to chime in something, the usual who won, who lost, who did well, who did horrible, what was the effect of Trump being there and not being there, how are the debate mo uh, moderators, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so Mike, you're you're smiling. You can go first. Um, well, I think Vivek was the winner of the debate. I mean, that that was my, my takeaway. I found it interesting that, that Pence actually had more time than Vivek, and he just used that time to continue to dig a bigger hole for himself. So I think he's a loser. I actually think Nikki Haley did pretty well. I mean, obviously, uh, I'm not a big not a big fan. I don't think any of us uh, probably are of her, but I think she she showed herself pretty well that night. Um, I think that DeSantis wasn't great. He was okay. He didn't make any stupid blunders. I think he dodged some questions. I think he could have been better. Um, but you know, listen, how many times do we say whoever won this debate? It doesn't really mean squat going forward. People generally tend to go with, uh, you know, whoever they feel like, that they want to and they feel is qualified and can win. So we'll see what happens. So I see a lot of people. Let me I ask feel... Mike a question while Mike's here. Mm -hmm. Mike, who lost? Who can't be in the race any longer because of the debate? Uh, Asa Hutchinson, please go away. Um, the other governor from North Dakota, it's bad enough. I can't remember his name. It's time to step aside. I mean, he wasn't terrible. I mean, but he didn't, you know, he obviously didn't, uh, stand out above the fray. It, I mean, to me, just in the way Chris Christie at one point, um, I think Vivek kind of shut him up at one point. And I don't think I've ever seen Chris Christie speechless, but there was a moment there where he was rendered speechless. And I was like, yeah, when, when <laughs> Vivek said, come give me a hug, like you hugged Obama. That, that was I know. possibly the line of the debate. Well, I, I hope DeSantis isn't stupid enough to do that with Biden. If he shows up in Florida after the storm. <laughs> no, maybe Biden will sniff DeSantis's hair. There you go. I looked up the word pugnacious in the dictionary and Chris Christie popped up. So apparently I'm using it correctly. Okay, Ed M., what did you want to say? Um, I, I saw a lot of people thinking that DeSantis won the debate. I saw a lot of people saying that Vivek, Vivek looked childish and immature. And I, I disagreed with both. I, I thought I had a much more negative reaction to DeSantis than Mike did. Um, I think... You know, and you, you shared an article in one of the show notes, Steve, about how DeSantis looked around when uh, when the question came out, whether you would support Trump if he were convicted in a court of law. I thought that was the I thought DeSantis lost the debate and, and lost a lot in my eyes when he had to look around and figure out whether other people were raising their hands before he could raise his hand. And yeah. I think I put that into the chat when we were when we were watching it together last week. And I, I thought that this, that was a terrible moment for DeSantis. I don't think he had many really good moments during the debate. Um, I, I don't understand why so many people think that Vivek came off childish or bad. I thought, I, I agree with Mike's assessment. I thought Vivek did really well. Um, he was having fun. And some people took that as... Well, he was right. having fun, but he also was really substantive. He really yeah. 
you know, he didn't have any answers where he just was talking a big circle, trying to figure out what to say. He knew what he wanted to say for every yeah. question. And including climate good. change, including climate change, where he had the guts to say it's a hoax. Uh, and he also one stepped up. He also said that he's for revolution, not reform, which I, I, I can't believe that our, our fearless leader has not uh, imprisoned him. Huh? Imprisoned him. Yes. Well, I was thinking that our fearless leader on Liberty Block would have endorsed him publicly by now. Okay, I'm looking at an article in Epic Times that is dated two days ago already. And this is why DeSantis says that he hesitated. Um, just had it. You know what? He explained he objected to the idea of being asked to perform gestures on stage as a way of expressing his viewpoint on the issue, especially, especially since he previously signed the pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee, regardless of who it may be. I was like, okay, are we really doing this? And people were doing it, so I made the pledge. Um, in his defense, I saw other people complaining about the hand raising, which was possibly childish, although everybody should have challenged the basis of the question and maybe none of them should have raised their hands and they should have challenged the whole business. So, but I, it was a bad look, no question about it. Well, I would never, under any circumstances, participate in a question where it's a raise your hand. There is nothing yeah. in the world that is that black and white, except maybe what the difference right. between a man and a woman, uh, that it doesn't require some nuance or explanation that I could just raise my hand one way or the other. I, I think that is like treating these presidential candidates as four-year-olds. And, uh, and whenever I see it, I want to go smack the moderators across their head and say, be better. Yeah. But I, I was going to say, if you're explaining, you're losing. And it doesn't do him. Well, any maybe good. he should have explained it on the spot then and said, we're not yeah. year olds. Well, he, he knocked out. What was Explain the one question that they asked where he's like, I'm not going to raise my hand. And he he basically stopped it. He put a stop to it. The, there was one question I can't remember. Was that before. after or before? There was, but I thought it was a, I didn't understand. It was it, it was something where I didn't understand why he was afraid to take a position on it. I don't remember yeah. what that one was. It, yeah. it does. It is funny that, you know, uh, one of the reasons why uh, Trump is popular is he would say things like, that's a stupid question. You are morons. And <laughs> and those are both true statements. And people are like, yes, that was a stupid question. And they are morons. I like this guy. And I think, you know, they really have to, the Republicans have to regain a little bit like that. I, I think if it was- Regain? Dot, when were they ever like that? Yeah, when were they ever, well, other than Trump. Well, Newt, I, Newt I, was I, like that. It, if they were playing a game of dodgeball, I think DeSantis won. Um, he definitely dodged all the balls. Um, I, I think if, if they were running for the uh, presidency of Ukraine, I think two or three of them really, really are in that in the lead now, <laughs> as opposed to the presidency of the United States. Um, the comments from um, uh, DeSantis Schills, of whom I, I count my, my good friend, Kurt Schlichter, uh, in, uh, is that Vivek is too young, too inexperienced, and he had, his, his ideas are too um, ivory tower, rather, you know, that like, yeah, sure, 
we need a revolution, but you know that hasn't ever well went, gone well in the past, et cetera. The French Revolution, et cetera. And and whereas I think he he's in in the tank for um, DeSantis because DeSantis has done you know has these policy positions in Florida. But you know as you learn more and more about what he's done in Florida, especially what Mike pointed out with the insurance, we've got this Category Four hurricane coming up towards I guess Panama City or something like that, and um, you know that. That's going to cause a lot of damage, and people are going to find out that it's not as uh, not as easy anymore to uh, you know get their homes replaced. I, I don't know. I have I a question: know. Does anybody in Florida or the United States know that legislatures write laws and not governors? <laughs> governors have to sign laws, they and governors the law. <laughs> need their party that that runs the legislature. I mean. Yeah. It's not like the, the governor is aloof from the process. No, but in New York State, for instance, the governor does run the state and everybody rubber stamps what he wants. But I don't know that it's like that. And if there was a groundswell, I happen to know the insurance reform question is rather complicated. And to put it all on a governor to me is a little bit naive. He doesn't snap his fingers and change complicated insurance regulations. And by the way, are some of those regulations even federal as far as who can insure in various states? Um, Listen, they changed their own state laws. So I think they've just added fuel to the, to the fire down there. In which uh, way? They've made it. Well, um, for example, normally if somebody were to go to sue, right? They're, fi they're fighting, uh, you know, XYZ carrier over their home that was a total loss during a hurricane. Um, the carrier is not paying it out. Home, Joe homeowner gets a lawyer. They go to court. They win. Now the carrier has to pay the, the legal fees. Well, the, the law that they passed now puts that on the homeowner. So, so what, think about what a spot that puts you in when you've had a total The homeowner loss. loses the claim? No, no, they could still win in court, but instead of the carrier paying the, the legal fees, it, that's still the burden of the homeowner. That's one thing that they did. They made yeah, it hard. Really they, they made it harder to to sue. Period. So uh, you know, there's other things too. But like I said, I mean, the not to dwell on this for a long time. But the Florida insurance market, just like the California insurance market, they're both a mess for different reasons. I think in California, you've got the green movement, poor land management, not regulations that don't allow carriers to charge premiums that they probably should should in order to stay afloat. And Florida, I think what they've done is the opposite. They've bent over for some of the big carriers, okay, and to keep them there. But to keep them there has come with a big price. And, and you know, it's people who own homes that are at a loss. Some people can't even find policies there right now. So imagine- I have a question. <laughs> I have a question. Uh, I have an unpopular view, possibly, that it is not my problem when people who live in paradise get their homes wiped out by hurricanes. And I'm sick and tired of FEMA yeah. coming in there and making their homes uh, whole. Yeah. If you want to live in paradise, let them pay the triple premiums. And uh, I don't think that's what's happening. And I think that's part yeah. of the problem. Listen, I, I think that's bigger picture, right? In terms of the insurance market and how it should work. I mean, I don't disagree with you. You want to live on the water in a hurricane zone, you should be paying through the nose on your premium. Like in Hawaii, is, Steve? We pay for it. Like in Hawaii, Steve? 100%. If you want to live in paradise, you got to pay to live in paradise. 
you know, those of us who live in crowded flushing are going to be assessed accordingly. If I wanted to live in paradise, I know what the uh, weather's going to be. It's no surprise there's a hurricane season. It's no surprise there are tornadoes in certain yeah. places, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's uh, what insurance companies have to charge. Um, not that I'm necessarily for big business, but my understanding right. of companies is they go into business to make money. Of course. The um, the hurricane, you know, the, the insurance market sort of scam, um, I could talk about forever. Uh, right. But um, but basically, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, I think it was State Farm hired someone to come in, a consultant to come in and show them how to cut costs. And, you know, insurance companies, 80% of yeah. the premiums or income goes to pay for stuff and then 15% goes to run the company and then 5% profit, something like that. And so they were, um, they hired this company, this consulting company, this all came out in a lawsuit um, to come in and say, you know, how can we squeeze that 15% so we can make the 5% higher? And basically it said, what are you talking about? It was ridiculous. Just stop paying claims. That's 80%. If you stop paying claims, I mean, you make all sorts of money. And then, you know, the, what what ended up happening in the insurance market since then, and I think we've all experienced it, certainly I've experienced it. Homeowners, uh, car insurance, when the car got totaled, and, um, and definitely medical insurance is they basically, you know, deny or, or slight you first. And then, you know, the, to, to the extent that you fight and fight hard, uh, they'll... Potential. So the squeaky wheel does okay, maybe gets back up to what they should have been. But if you're not particularly squeaky, and there are a lot of people who aren't squeaky, they say, oh, well, they're only going to give me $500 for this car when it's worth two grand, then they only take the 500 and they lose. So uh, I, that was, uh, it all came out in a lawsuit and all these companies have adopted it. You know, why, <laughs> why cut their salaries and their, you know, their bureaucracy when you just stop paying claims. That's, that's I have a, a question. Part. Are these publicly traded companies, all of them? Well, all but nationwide. That's uh, owned by its um, owned by it, its members, I think. it's uh, Okay, so the capitalist D says they're making money for us and they're making money for teachers' pensions and for cops' pensions and for city pensions, etc., so that's what they're in the business of doing. Well, there's a question about business business ethics, right? I mean, that's the wow. whole thing. B business ethics has gone into the toilet, and it it you know it probably started a long time ago, yeah. um, but it really accelerated uh, in the '80s and '90s, where I think um, the businesses, you know, there's this thing called the principal agent problem. You hire. So I remember a small business and, uh, and I was talking to the owner one night and there's a big sign that says, if you don't get a, a receipt, you, your thing is free. I was like, why do you do that? I was like, what, what does that mean? He says, oh, I hire someone to come in here and they just take the money that people give them and, uh, and keep it for themselves and don't put it in the till. I'm like, oh. So he says, so I have to do that to keep them honest, right? Yeah. I suppose there's, you know, a, a lot of stuff, but right. if you're the if you're the agent, you know, management of a big company, um, you're supposed to make money for the principal, owners of the big company. But what happened somewhere is that the manager, and it's you know, again, it's always been this way to a certain extent, but in in the '80s, especially with the securitization of everything, the uh, the managers of the company. Um, 
make money for themselves first using all sorts of complicated stock options and and uh, whatnot and then you know their you know bonuses and golden parachutes and all that and then they worry about um, the owners of the company and they only worry about the owners of the company because the stock prices on the market is is tracked and they do some really weird things like Apple Apple had, was sitting on 200 million dollars 200 billion dollars in cash but when zero interest rates came along, I don't know why we're talking about them. the zero interest rates came along um, they borrowed a huge amount of money at, at essentially zero and bought back their stock driving the stock price up. Well, you say, oh, driving the stock price up. That's great because the stock owners, that's, uh, but now they're like, they've got $100 billion in debt instead of $200 billion in cash. And well, what it, what it actually did was it, it enriched those people who had options. And I know you can buy the stock, but you, you know, it's hard to, hard to buy options necessarily, uh, but they all had options and they, they enrich themselves beyond the dreams of avarice, the management of the company. Um, and while the stock price did go up, the company went into debt. And I think a lot of that is pushed again by the Fed with the zero interest rate policy. We don't have that today, thank God. I think there will be a restructuring where all of these crazy things don't get done. But I think you know when the next recession comes, they'll probably get back to it. Now, why, why I went into the whole principal agent thing was I, I think the insurance companies, again, um, you know, a lot of these companies don't care about the product anymore. They don't care about customer service anymore. They don't care about, um, you know, making a quality, a quality product. They, they care about, you know, yeah. quick, cheap. And listen, I mean, there, there's an entire book on this. The most famous book is called delay, deny, defend. You could find That's it the on one Amazon. I was talking about you can find it on Amazon. It talks about all the tactics. I mean, Listen, let's stipulate property insurance, just like health insurance, not a free market, it's heavily regulated, right? I mean, there's a revolving door. The people who run these state insurance departments most likely came from the insurance industry itself. Um, if there was an ideal situation where it was a free market, um, those the, the policies you buy, they are contracts. And this is where Ed can tell you, it's supposed to be a contract of good faith. You often hear about what's bad faith, but it is supposed to be a contract of good faith. And that means that they're supposed to pay the claims on it. But that doesn't I just want, happen. I, I, I want to so echo many, part of what Mike was saying. And, and I'll let you get in in a second, Ed. I just, sure. Stephen, you made it sound like like these insurance companies are, are businesses acting in a free market situation. They're so regulated by the government that they might as well be government actors. That's what I was trying to say. They're not free business. They're not free market at all. Well, but you were saying that, uh, you know, that they, that are in business, they're, they're in money. business to make money for their, for their yes. shareholders. I said generally they, businesses yeah. are in business to make I money. Mean, right, but insurance companies but, just aren't. I mean, yes, they're in business to make money for their shareholders, but um, they're so regulated that I, yeah. I just can't. But who are they regulated by? That's so that's I'm, the I whole point saying. of public choice <laughs> theory and regulatory capture, right? They're regulated by people who used to work for them and will work for them in the future. Just like pharma companies, we know this now, are regulated by 
people who used to work for pharma companies and who will work for the pharma companies in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's the regulatory capture and the you know public choice theory is you maximize whatever your future employers yeah. going to do, you know, right. as opposed to- I mean, to listen, the, this is a complicated industry and, and listen, the, the, the insurance companies also have, they have a responsibility to, when they collect those premiums to have that money there and be investing it, whatever they do properly. So when there are catastrophic situations that they have the money there. Now, I don't know if they're all being managed properly. I do know that Biden inflation over the last few years has had a big impact on things in fairness. So I, I think then you start getting into the whole idea of reinsurance, insurance companies, insurance for the insurance companies. And I think some of these major carriers have basically been told by the reinsurers, we can't continue to go on the way we've been going on right now. That's led to the state farms, the all states not offering new policies in places like California and probably in other states too. Florida, again, is, is not a good situation. There are some things in life that are simply not insurable against. And healthcare is one of those things. Um, you know, obviously health insurance isn't really insurance, it's prepayment of, you know, it's it's prepayment, we can get into that. But even, even things like, you know, deadly diseases, there's at some point, like, where it just is going to cost a fortune. Like, that's, you know, kind of why Medicare was, was invented, right? If you go, like I did when I was 55, I went and I got a 10-year term life insurance policy. Um, now, when I hit 65 and I say to this company, I want a 10-year term life insurance policy, they will be happy, I'm sure, to write me one for like, you know, $5,000 a month or some crazy amount like that. You know, at some point, you know, you become uninsurable and flood flooding is uninsurable in this country. No one will do floods and the government got into the flood insurance business because no one will do flood insurance. Um, on the other hand, uh, the government is the one that encourages people to live in flood zones um, and, you know, on the beach, everybody wants to live on the beach and, you know, that's, that's the, that's the issue, right? If you live on the yeah. beach in Florida, if you're on, in Panama City or Destin or one of those places, you know, put your house on stilts because uh, yeah. it's going or to be even in, even in Jersey. And I want to move off the conversation. I want to challenge wording that you used and we can get back to it tonight, another day. I don't think businesses have or lack ethics. I think people have or lack ethics. And I think it's because people don't have ethics anymore that businesses are in such bad shape. But I want to table that because I want to go back. I think that's true. But hiding behind a business, how many times have you ever seen someone who hides behind? Well, it's just policy. Well, they all do. But I'm yeah, saying, they all do. But, you know, just like they said, this is a country for moral people. Businesses are yeah. moral people. If the people right. have no business ethics, we can do all the ethics training in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But if people don't have ethics, um, it's not going to matter. The next issue I wanted to bring up about the Trump thing is New Hampshire. Um, somebody in Florida, I'm not sure what other states are trying to pull this 14th Amendment, get them off the ballot crap. And obviously it infuriates me. And every time I 100% agree with Ed M, and possibly all of us, that Trump does not deserve to be president just because he's being persecuted. When they do this stuff, I have to doubt myself two more percent because it's so ridiculous what they're doing. 
So I don't think these 14th Amendment things are going to go anywhere. Does anybody think they have a prayer? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, first of all, they have no legal merit whatsoever. If you read the section of the 14th Amendment, you can read it if you want. It clearly only refers to the Confederates who took up arms against the United States government. It has been repeatedly over uh, the years, and the citations were in an article by Robert Barnes, have been held by courts to only apply to those Confederates, all of whom were pardoned by the Congress in the Johnson administration, the Andrew Johnson administration. So let's get that out of the way. Um, the, the, the case law, the plain text and intent of that section of the 14th Amendment solely apply to Confederates. That said, none of that matters to these uh, leftist judges. <laughs> and um, I, I don't think that the Supreme Court cares. I think to a certain extent, um, you will get, you know, you, you will get a lot of these uh, all over the country, these challenges to Trump being on the ballot by, because um, Trump's going to win the nomination. So like, we can do all we want and talk all about the debates and it's great. And, and they're all running for vice president because there's no chance in the world after this last uh, debate that Trump is not going to be the nominee. No chance. I disagree so, with I, you. I don't know about that. Not, I, I, I would, I, I, there's a guy in Jersey who, whose house so. just got hit by a meteor, <laughs> put, put a hole in the roof and a hole in the second floor and landed this meteor just landed in his living room and they went and, and uh, sent it to scientists to find out what it was. It was in the news. That will happen to me before Trump loses the GOP <laughs> nomination. There is no chance. Um, but I do think they will try this and they will, they will win in, in some, of these, uh, some of these blue jurisdictions and he won't be on the ballot in certain states. Now they're going to try it in the states that matter, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, Wisconsin, uh, where else do they cheat? Nevada, uh, Nevada Arizona. 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 They'll try it in those. I don't know whether they'll get it in all of them or some of them, but they don't need to get it in too many to get them off the ballot. So I think, I think that will happen in some thing. And the Supreme Court will uh, like, yeah, we'll hear this case, sure next year you know they'll slow walk it all of the appeals courts and the supreme court will will slow walk it just because if, they he, don't if, he, if he's the if he's the nominee and that happens uh we're getting closer and closer to the tipping point there man hey mike you think that you disagree with that you think there is a prayer for others non-trumpers uh you know what's funny i'm, I'm glad this came back up again I don't know if you guys ever watch a Food Network or Bobby Flay. There's a show called There's a, sh a show called Beat Bobby Flay. Who would admit that? I admit it. It's a good show. It's fun. My wife watches. The it. concept of the show is two chefs come in, they battle it out in round one, and the winner of round one goes on to go up against Bobby Flay. That was my read on the on the debate. I feel like all of this is a competition to get to that one person who moves on to the next round. And my bet is still on DeSantis to be that that guy, despite his performance. However, you want to read it in the first go around, 
I think he's the, still the only viable alternative. And um, the only two who because well, the only two who made any sort of positive waves were were DeSantis and Vivek, and DeSantis also had some negative. Um, but so I th I think those are the two that that go around. I I don't see Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or Asa Hutchinson or um, the governor of North Dakota. I I, I don't see them. And Mike Pence, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I tell you, when he got up there and proclaimed, um, you know, his faith in Jesus Christ, mm. I thought if he was, you know, campaigning for bishop, I thought that was a really good, uh, a really good uh, talk if he wanted to be the bishop. But I, I just can't see that resonating, yeah. even with even with hardcore Christian conservatives, well, there's a little bit of- That's because Donald Trump, Donald Trump is factor. the new Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a little bit of ick factor nowadays when you go yeah. and you profess that your candidacy is all about serving Jesus. That There's a little bit of ick factor in that. And I, I don't think that, that won him any points with anyone. Not that so. You believe that others than Trump do have a chance. You asking me? Yes, you're at you're uh, at them. Oh, I didn't hear who you asked. Not only do I think that, but I I think that there are signs that Trump is not going to make it all the way to the end. I think part of the reason why he's so determined to push DeSantis out is Trump is spending all of his money on lawyers and and uh and his just his campaign staff. He's not doing any messaging. He's not going to Iowa. He's not. He's not meeting people in New Hampshire. He's, I mean, he's got a solid, uh, he's got a solid uh, base of support in South Carolina, but I can, e I mean, not only can I easily see it, I, I firmly believe he's going to lose Iowa and he's going to lose New Hampshire. Who's he going to lose it to? I don't know. I mean, either DeSantis. He's got or, or... 60 point leads. It's 80 to 20. I, who's he going to lose I, it to? There's so many things wrong with the polling. I mean, I there's yeah, yeah, I agree with that. There are issues. I mean, and it's not just. I mean, you've brought up in the past the the dishonesty of the pollsters, but absolutely true. I think I think that it's deeper than that. Even an honest pollster, think about how hard it must be to get a, a, a truly representative sample today. I mean, how many people have a landline anymore? I mean, it's just so easy for people to turn the phone off and not be reachable. So I, uh, they do it. They do it by uh, cell phones, too, now. But, yeah, I, I understand yeah. the problem with polling. I just I just don't. We'll see when I comes around how 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 badly everyone other than Trump performs. And I say this as a person who is not particularly on the Trump train. This is just someone who is I'm predicting this, not. Trump has savaged Kim Reynolds, the very popular governor in, in Iowa. He's attacked DeSantis for the same heartbeat bill that, that Kim Reynolds signed. Trump is not making friends in Iowa. I, I would be stunned if Trump wins Iowa, honestly. Okay. Well, we have, we have a, a prediction. Are we going to put a bet on it? <laughs> I've already got a bet with our friend Daniel on it. So I'm happy to. to okay, add me. Double X. down. Double down. 
Add me in. What, uh, I think, you know, the hurricane, I believe, is an opportunity for DeSantis, even though they're going to trash him no matter what. But for some people, he may be able to shine again. And I think it's going to be interesting. So the only way DeSantis is going to shine is if he takes on Trump. I mean, it's just so obvious that that's the only, that's the thing in his way right now. He's never going to shine until he gets out of Trump's shadow. Well, and- He's he, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, he's got he's going to have to sharpen, uh, you know, based after what he did the first. He's got to he's got to sharpen his uh his issues and what he's for. He he can't be doing this dodging and humana humana humana, half raise the hand thing. You know, he he's got to be committed to what he believes in. You know, know, I I didn't even feel comfortable when he was asked about Ukraine. He 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 was half hearted. Mike, I'm going to word that slightly differently. He doesn't have to sharpen. He has to get rid of the people around him, dulling him down. That's what I think. Whatever it takes. Let's let, let's review from like 2016. Everybody in the country, I mean, you know, not kids because they weren't paying attention, but everybody in the country knew what Trump was running on, right? Stop illegal immigration, build the wall. You know, better trade relations uh, uh, that we're not just giving away jobs to these foreign countries, bring the jobs back home, right? That was another one. And um, what was it? Certainly those were the, those were the top truth. What's that? Lock her, lock her up. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, lock her up. Yeah, he didn't do that. Um, he did pretty good on the immigration thing. Manufacturing did, and trade. Man, he didn't do very good on manufacturing and trade, to be honest. Uh, he, he didn't really succeed in that. Uh, it's still a that's huge what he issue. was saying. That's what he was. It, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if but see, those issues are still there. That the illegal immigration issue has gone, you know, completely orbital with with Biden. There'll have been ten million illegal, more illegal immigrants let in. Um, the trade issue is still a disaster. Um, the war in Ukraine is a huge, huge problem uh, now. And all you need to do is pick three or four important things and advocate for it. In other words, you don't have to be, you don't have to be Trump's, you don't have to talk like Trump, you don't have to insult people like Trump, although insulting the media is always winner, a winner. You, all you have to do is pick two or three big things and illegal immigration, trade, the war in Ukraine are, are the three big things. And what I didn't oh. hear from any of those candidates was like, these are my three things. Because three is about all people can take, you know, uh, these detailed policy positions and I've got a position. And Trump isn't even doing it this time. Trump is running on, they cheated in 2020, yeah. elect me now. That's his one issue. And yeah. that's a loser unless we're in a depression, which we very well may be. This, uh, definitely Vivek the- actually had issues that he was that he was pretty articulate about, you know, the woke agenda. The deep state and everything, yeah. Climate change being a hoax. I agree. I thought Vivek did well. Um, I thought he easily won. I thought when the Ukraine issue came up, it was pretty telling because virtually all of them, except for Vivek and DeSantis going like this, they were all they're all on board. They're all in with the with oh, yeah, it split the hogs, fueling, yeah, fueling and funding. Yeah. But I felt I mean, they're so out of touch with the, the base on that particular issue. I think they're completely out of touch. 
And for Nikki Haley, I mean, like I said, I think she had a good debate to performance. But one of the key moments of that debate was when she turned to Vivek and was like, you don't have any idea about foreign policy. And it shows, you know, she said something like that. And I'm sitting there, I'm saying that might have sound, been a nice little soundbite for you in a way. But most people are on board with Vivek. I mean, they, they don't well, want the, the, the person who has done the best on Ukraine is is Trump, because when he's asked. Do you support Ukraine? Oh, yeah. He says, I support peace. I support stop killing people. I want to stop the killing. And then once we stop killing people, we can work out all the issues. He's for peace first and then um, then figure out yeah. the issues at the negotiating table. And that is the correct answer. So I, 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 you know, I think Vivek is the closest to that. And I think Vivek is, in fact, running for vice president. I don't know. Trump, so it's uh, also interesting. The press is going after him a little more, which usually suggests that he did well in the debate. But there's a lot of talk that he that he did not believe in half of those things two weeks ago, so to speak. Um, is he a little immature? I have no idea. Yes, he definitely says the right things. I had basically never listened to him until the debate, and I did have an overall positive um, impression from him. So let me say. Let me say, give you my famous line about him being young. I'll take an unproven talent over a proven loser every single time. 100%. The rest of that stage was proven losers. And just getting back to what I was going to ask Mike. Yes, the, everyone on that stage was out of touch with the base. But that is the Republican Party. That has been the Republican Party for Beyond all of our lifetimes, the Republican oh, Party is, has been at war with its base for longer than any of us on this yeah, panel has been alive. But I don't think the base has. I, I mean, the I base think, has lost I think, patience. I, no, I think if you would talk to the base 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we would have all been most of them would have been hawks, too. They would have been Putin bad. We got to stand up to the big bad tyrant. A lot of us aren't that way anymore. On discrete issues, you're right. But I think the larger point, though, is the Republican Party has made a feast and had made it a policy to run against their voters. Rush used to talk about that, and and it's true. But I'm saying again, I don't think the voters would have been against them on this issue in years past. I think things have changed. The basis changed. We don't want these wars. We, it is America first. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, if, if you want to attack us or something like that, then we're going to come at you guns blazing. Right. I'm kind of like the Glenn Beck school with this stuff. Right. You want to you want to F with us. We're, we're going to lay we're going to come after you hard. You're going to wish you never did. But instead, we have this mission creep if you will of it started with the funding and then it's this and and they're they're all they're all taking the same sort of chalk position of putin's the big bad evil guy it's all his fault and he's he wants to uh put the soviet union back together and if we don't stop him now that's what he's going to do and i don't think a lot of us buy that in, anymore at all I think we see it as we're making things worse and we're escalating the situation. Go back in time, though, Mike. I mean, the Republicans talked a big game about Obamacare and then they got in power. 
They weren't for repealing Obamacare. Uh, I agree. You know, Bush, Bush 43, look at all his big spending bills. He gave us no child left behind. He was the I one know. who said we have to, you know, we have to subvert capitalism to, to save capitalism or whatever he said. He, he I was. hear you. You know, I mean, the Republican Party, and, and I mean, we could go back 50 years more. I mean, that's why Goldwater said we, we need a, a choice, not an echo. Because the Republican Party was never giving its voters a choice. And that's been the case for, for, for 50, to, you know, 75 to 100 years. The Republican Party has been at war with its voters for a long time. Yes, it's becoming sharper in focus and, and the war is, is getting worse and it's on bigger issues that are more fundamental. But yeah. the, the split, the schism, the chasm between the party and its base has always been there. And maybe it's getting wider, but that, uh, I think it definitely is. Right, Mike, what yeah. you're saying is that, is that the base has changed as oh, much yeah. as leadership. And I, I agree mean, with you and particularly when it comes to foreign policy and, and issues of the military. I mean, it, we don't have to go back that far to the, the, you know, the second Gulf War going after Saddam. I would venture to say most Republicans were in favor of George Bush's actions there at the time. And, and I think that was a bit of a turning point, let's be real, because of what happened in the aftermath of all of that. But um, that neocon type of, of policy and approach is one that I think the base has mostly rejected at this point. I mean, the base has changed on a bunch of issues, right? I mean, 30 years ago, the base would never have been for, for Trump's kind of populism, for, for trade restrictions, sure. for, you know, I mean, they, there was talk about bringing manufacturing home, but... Uh, fundamentally, the Republican Party and its base were for free trade. And, you know, same thing with, with the Internet companies. I mean, we've talked about on this show how the social media companies, you know, the, the conservative and libertarian sectors of, of, of our political spectrum, up until maybe, you know, one to three years ago, were saying these are private companies, let them do what they want. And then, you know, and that's changed, too. But... I don't, to me, those are just particulars. They're sharp particulars and they're particulars that, that invade every person's life in a way that um, some things are just, you know, you, you can be above the fray and think it doesn't affect you. I mean, you know, when you go back on free trade, you know, 30 years ago, you know, if you're, if you're some hoity-toity Republican in, in New York City and, some job in Ohio goes to goes overseas, you don't care. But the issues today, they're everywhere. I mean, immigration, you know, the hoity-toity Republican in New York City, to the extent there are any left, you know, is facing a migrant crisis today, right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, there's no, it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere. You can't avoid it. And, and the, the Republican Party has been at war with its base for a long time. And it's just uh, it's, obviously, it's I, I, you know, there there was ideological um, support among conservatives for for free trade um, based on Milton Friedman and um, you know oh. Ayn Rand and, mm. and Mary Rothbard and whatnot. It's only when China acceded to the you know WTO and then we saw 
an enormous fraction of our manufacturing go to China over the last you know, 24 years. Uh, such let me that when we a second, Ed, I mean, it was the same thing with Japan before China. But we, we, yeah, we, were, we were all for free trade, even while Japan was taking our manufacturing base. But Japan wasn't our enemy, right? And Japan uh, at the time in the 80s, they, they weren't our enemy. And American foreign policy has always, since the Second World War, when at the end, we were the only manufacturer of anything. And no one else had any manufacturing. And Britain had a little bit. That's it. Are are always been um, to to give away uh, tariff protection to the rest of the world and maintain low tariffs in the United States to encourage them to rebuild after the Second World War. That has always been our uh, foreign policy. The American people never voted on it. It's deep state policy. You know, deep Bret Woods, etc. But that was the policy. And it continued into the 80s through with Japan. It continued, oh, we're going to do the same thing to China. We're going to let them have high tariff protection, build up their industry, and they'll become a free country and all that. And, and I believed in it and, you know, back in the 90s. And I thought those, the crazy leftists who are uh, you know, riding in Seattle uh, in 1999 against globalism, I thought they were nuts. And I still think they're nuts because I don't think they understand uh, you know, why they were against it. But in fact, it was a disaster. And, and it was particularly a disaster for small businesses um, in the United States. And that it, the small businesses were the, the basic backbone of the Republican Party, not the rich people, not the poor people, but the middle class small business owners. And it was just a disaster. And so now, we understand what happens with a free trade. We have a better idea about why Ricardo was wrong, or rather why the Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage was um, had incomplete premises and and thus uh, leads you in the wrong direction. Um, and and so we we understand a little bit more about that and realize that you know obviously a couple company, a country like Luxembourg has to have free trade, but a country like the United States, it ends up, it ends up hurting us. The, the problem is, and then, you know, the same thing, you know, free trade is, is the same part. It's one part of, you know, can, you know, can goods move freely? Can people move freely? Can money move freely? Um, Can ideas, you know, move freely, that sort of thing. And, and we all think, you know, it's the, Atarian part of conservatarian. We all think, oh yeah, yeah, all of that. Um, and uh, it turns out that there are definitely definite downsides and the downsides are not spread out among the whole population. They're targeted to specific types of people. In fact, there's huge upsides to the free movement of good and the free movement of capital and the free movement of people. There's huge upsides and they are very, very narrowly targeted, the upsides. To a certain group of people, and the downsides are bro- more broadly, but you know, hurts a certain amount of people. And and until we saw this with our own eyes, we watched it happen in front of us. Um, the giant sucking sound. The giant sucking you know what, sound. Though, <laughs> it, it works. We were stupid it. because yeah. if you look at history, 
free trade has always been the, the policy of the declining power and protectionism has always been the policy of the up and coming power. That's how it was in the 19th century with the United States and Britain. That's how it was in the 20th century with the United States and the rest of the world. I think that that's, I mean, separate and apart from the cultural disaster that free trade and unilateral free trade and free movement of goods and people and, and ideas across borders uh, creates, I mean, even just economically, it, 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 it leads to the downfall, the, 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 the hegemon that demand that asks for free trade winds up being in decline because of it. And the- Well, we wanted, the people who ran our foreign policy after the Second World War wanted, quote unquote, decline because they wanted to build up Europe, Japan, the Far East, because they had nothing. I mean, you know, the, the GDP of Germany in 1945 was essentially zero. The private GDP, you know, well, was zero, um, both, you know, in January, May, and then after that was zero. So, I mean, you have, it has to increase from zero if Germany was ever going to be a country again. So I, the point of our foreign policy was to build up these countries, and we did it by allowing them to have tariffs and sell to us at low tariffs. And that has always been that, our policy. That, that's the whole lesson. You just you just name the lesson right there. If that's you right. want to build stronger, you need tariffs to, to protect you economically. And that's, it worked. Yes. And, uh, but there are other things, right? Because by 1955, the GDP per capita in Germany was higher than the GDP per capita in the winter um, uh, United Kingdom, England. And the, the reason was because they had a, Basically, they, they had utter and complete top-down total. They had the best thing that happened to Germany in the Second World War is their government was completely and utterly destroyed down to the last individual, the denazification. They had no government at all. The government was completely dismantled and destroyed. And to a certain extent, that happened in Japan too, although less, somewhat less so. Um, whereas in England, which, you know, like the United States was essentially a totalitarian dictatorship during the war, they just kept it that way. And therefore they had absolutely no um, economic growth at all until Churchill was- Well, the United States in, had a lot of growth from 46 to 90. That's, that's because the Republicans uh, elected in 46 decided, you know, we're done with this and repealed whole swaths of the New Deal. Um, and I, I, you know, over, over Truman's veto. So, I mean, that was the thing is like, and, and you know, the, the first German uh, chancellor, Conrad Adenauer, uh, he removed price controls on the first day he was allowed to by the occupying powers, which was in 1948. And that was the beginning of, of uh, Germany's rise. So it, it's a, it's a it, we did everything, in, in a lot of ways we did, things right after the Second World War. I mean, if you if you want to understand that Europe had to be able to produce enough to feed itself, Japan had to be able to produce enough to feed itself, not just food, but they could produce to trade. Um, but at some point that had to stop and we had to have an equal playing field and we've never had an equal playing field. Um, I, I, you know, and we did it, and then we did it to the communist Chinese who aren't nice people. Um, and I, I think that's the whole trade issue in a nutshell. I mean, 
it can be explained a little bit better. Like, you know, Ricardo's comparative advantage example was like, suppose the United States was better at producing both airplanes and olive oil than Spain. But Spain is relatively better, comparatively better, comparative advantage in producing olive oil than airplanes. So America produces airplanes, Spain produces olive oil, they trade them and everything is better. That's Ricardo's example in a nutshell. I picked Spain because they are a big olive oil producer. The problem is when you produce airplanes, <laughs> there is a lot of benefit you know, to producing airplanes. You have whole industries that you have to do, that you have to have to produce all the components to get an airplane. There's, there's uh, science and technology that, and to resolve oils, you need trees and people to whack them occasionally. And that does not help at all. So that is a part of the technological issue that Ricardo, back in the 1800s had no idea what he was talking about. So it might be true that we're better at airplane, comparative advantage in airplanes than Spain does, but Spain, if it knows what it's good for it and wants to have a high tech sector, it better have airplane production as well. And that's the problem with this free trade comparative advantage thing is like, you have to pick, you have to understand what industries are crucial to your success, not just as a, as an industrial society or as a, but as a free society, because there are certain technologies you need to maintain your own freedom from external aggressors. And those are all the ones we gave away to China. It's just shocking how, how awful it became in the United States. Now, a little bit of it got fixed under the Trump administration, um, but not, not a lot. And uh, it, it, we really need, because suppose China does invade Taiwan tomorrow. Well, they're going to do to China what they did to Russia, right? No more trade, cut it off completely. That recession in the United States is going to hurt China too, but that recession in the United States is going to be worse than the Great Depression because our entire, the entire economy runs on um, chips made in Taiwan and crap consumer goods made in China. Well, and pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals. Uh, anti pharma antibiotics, yeah. Yeah, all these things, like the, all the people who depend on insulin, they're all dead. You know, all the people who get sick from uh, all the soldiers who are fighting, who get wounded and get infected, they're all dead too, because they, we don't make any uh, antibiotics. We don't make any insulin. We don't make any of that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the reasons why, I think that's one of the reasons why the United States is trying to build up so much military force in the Pacific that they deter China from doing it because I think they know that if they do it, uh, it's going to be a disaster. And I think, I, mean, I don't know what China thinks. I think China thinks they can probably wait, but I don't, I don't know. Um, but I'm so mad. And let's talk a little bit about what makes me mad. First of all, it was confirmed that the cops had a barricade on the only road out of Lahaina And you've seen these pictures. I have one here. If anyone, uh, if I'm allowed, if you make me um, allowed to share. You should be able to share. Oh, I am able to share? 
Should so be. for those of you those of you watching, uh, blah blah blah, yada yada yada, it never works. Never ever works. Why this doesn't work? Um, you do you want to give us a little background as you're trying to? It's uh, yeah. Hold on one second. Oh, I know why it's not working. Yeah. Oh, oh, do you see it now? No, yes. See the road line? No. Yeah. Yes. You see it? All the cars? Mm -hmm. Where's the police yeah. barricade? Yes. Uh, it's further down. This is the aftermath. This is after people are going. So these cars are lined up to get out of the road. There was a police barricade. Now, those policemen who thought they were doing their job, this situation right here that you're seeing on the screen where all these people burned to death or had to jump in the ocean, swim out 500 meters and still were coughing and choking in the smoke. This is the situation that the founders put the Second Amendment in the Constitution to. The, the people of Hawaii don't have Second Amendment rights. But if they had, this would have been the perfect time for them to remind the policemen politely, but ex extreme prejudice, that they are to get the fuck out of the way and let these cars get out of this firestorm. Because this, this thousand people are dead because of outright murder on the part of the officials, um, the cops, the people who are controlling the cops, all these people are dead. And it's just, if you obey the government, you die. That's the lesson. If you disobey, you have a chance to live. That's what we learned in COVID. That's what we're learning in Lahaina. And, and that's an interesting point to bring up with, with the COVID restrictions coming back and the masking coming back and Biden making a request for funding for a new vaccine that he's going to yeah. force on everybody. Yeah, we're not doing that. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. It's like, we're, we're, not, we're not doing that anymore. What if Biden says that's okay? The lesbian speed dating in the UK had an issue because some transgender women, who I guess are biologically men, wanted to come. And they said, well, I'm a woman and they're like women, so I'm a lesbian. And um, they were denied. And then someone said they were not non-inclusive enough and they're like shutting it down or something. I think it was the UK. But even lesbians are under attack. And of course, lesbians who are really into only women with presumably women biology, they were not interested in this transgender woman being at the lesbian dating. And someone said, it's not inclusive. And I'm like, that's the whole point of dating. It's not inclusive. It's very exclusive. In fact, I am exclusive with my wife for the past eight years. Um, so that's very interesting. Yeah. Men who don't date trans women are, so, are supposed to be a yeah, trans well, I saw that. But it's funny because as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, sex is all about certain plumbing. <laughs> and I, that's the whole point, right? If you, you've got to have the right plumbing. If you go to a plumbing supply store, and the plumbing doesn't fit, like you're doing it wrong, right? So I, I just don't understand how they can say, if you don't date a trans woman, you're, you're transphobic. Um, well, I saw that meme years ago, and I thought it was real, but I heard it was fake. It's like, it was a meme of a woman saying, if you, if you a man won't date a trans woman, you're, you're transphobic. But it turns out it was fake. But now it's really actually happening. Again, yeah. the, the truth is stranger than the fiction. I know Ed has to go. I, I did want to uh, have one minor rant about Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson has done uh, a lot of good, but lately he's just doing a lot of bad. He's platformed um, 
Oh, Andrew what's Tate. It? Andrew Tate, who is a horrible human being who made his money uh, in porn and who, um, you know, convinces girls uh, that he loves them and to come and start doing porn for him. And he's he's been platform. He 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 then went on to platform a guy by the name of Douglas McGregor, who is uh, very much a shill for uh, Russia in the Russia-Ukraine war. Says that. Um, 40,000 Russians have been killed and 400,000 Ukrainians have been killed. And all I can say to that is, well, then why isn't Putin sipping vodka in Kiev? Because if that were really the case, that, and so why would anyone say something so absurd? And it's obviously because he is in the tank for Russia. I mean, he's not a Russian agent, maybe, but he's in the tank. And, and Tucker gives them all of this complete seriousness. And there's another couple of guests he had. He had uh, Orban on, uh, my man, Victor Orban. That was a very good interview. But he tends to like... What about the softballs he threw at Trump? He, he, he just... There are a lot of things Trump needs to face before he gets into the campaign against Biden. And these are hard questions. Like, why did you hire so many people who were against your policies? And then when you knew they were against their policies, and this has been documented in, you know, Scott Atlas has a whole book on it, but when you knew they were against your policies, why did you keep them? Why did you fire? I mean, the, that's what, you know, why did you trust Fauci? Why did you turn over up. policy to Burks? Why all of these people, you didn't like them. You thought they were wrong, yet you kept them. Why? Why did you fire them? You were hired to be president because on The Apprentice, you were good at saying you're fired. And you fired no one. Um, well, There's a hard question. I got news for you, Ed. He's alienated so many people, so many otherwise good people that would follow his policies. He's going to be in the same position in, if he gets in again. Yeah, there's a there's lot of people in the MAGA move. There's not enough. I mean, there are lots of MAGA supporters, but there aren't a lot of MAGA Trump supporter people in, in leadership positions that are gonna be able to take over in policy positions that he's gonna need. Why isn't DeSantis then, who is kind of the second place guy, um, why isn't he asking these questions? I, I, I don't know why. And what is gonna happen with this DeSantis um, debate with Gavin Newsom? What's <laughs> this going really on? Gonna happen? I, I don't know how that really does DeSantis any good right now. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there. If he that, gets that's, crushed. That's fraught with more risk than reward. Yeah, if he sure. gets crushed by Newsom, who is, after all, a slimy used car salesman. Yeah. Um, then I, he, he's over. Right. It's a huge risk, and I don't see the upside. Um, you know, we started at the ad, so talking about the debate, and now we brought up the Tucker thing, and I agree it was a complete softball interview. Um, uh, but I don't think Trump was harmed at all by not showing up at the debates. I'm not sure it ended up being a factor whatsoever. I think a lot of us watched the debate, watched the Tucker interview afterwards, and um, came to the conclusion, which was just stated, that Tucker went really easy on him, didn't ask any tough questions. So, uh, so I go back to my Bobby Flay analogy, which is we're waiting for round two. Who's going to be the last man standing? up against Trump. But real quick, one quick story, very, very quick. I came across this before the show. It's always fun to share news about woke Disney. And apparently woke Disney is getting sued 
and they're being sued for allegedly misleading investors um, that they hid Disney Plus losses in a quote-unquote unfraudulent scheme. And this article comes from one of my favorite non-political sites called Cordcutter News. So apparently um, the article goes on to say that Disney's facing a lawsuit from one of its investors that claims the media giant misled shareholders about the success of their streaming service. Uh, Stourbridge Investments filed a lawsuit, which has Disney breached its fiduciary duties by issuing false and misleading statements and or omitting material information in the, co the company's public findings and proxy statements from approximately 2010. Um, you can go read the rest of the article on, on that site, Cord Carter News, but uh, I always uh, like to see wonderful, great news about um, woke Disney and companies like that. Um, so very, very interesting. They apparently were, were using one of the other Disney companies to hide um, some of their marketing costs or something like that. But yep, they're, uh, they're, they're being sued. So all power to Stourbridge. Okay, anybody else want to bring anything up real fast? Because I know we're under time pressure. It's time to use antitrust against BlackRock and Vanguard. How's that for an anti-conservative position? You've got my vote. Yeah, it seems like there's not much choice. Okay, we're going to wrap it up for this evening. We will be back next week, regular time. Please send feedback to the Conservatarian Exchange at libertyblock.com. And sorry for any technical difficulties we may have had. Wishing everyone a good evening.